Welcome to Podcast at SDA. I'm David Bridell, and this series is devoted to exploring the plays in our season at USC's School of Dramatic Arts. Before going any further, special thanks to Phil Allen and the team at the VoiceOver Studio here on campus. And I'd like to mention a podcast that has been created by one of our faculty members. E-Travels with E-Trules takes you on a myriad of journeys with the fabulous and uh, irreplaceable Eric Trules, faculty member here at the School of Dramatic Arts. Uh, can be found on iTunes, E-Travels with E-Trules. To today's business... Uncle Vanya by Anton Chekhov, translated by Sharon Marie Carnegie, is currently playing as part of our MFA repertory here on campus at the Scenedoc Theatre. Final performance of Vanya is on Saturday, March the 4th at 2.30pm, and for more details, please visit the School of Dramatic Arts website. I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast today Sharon Marie Carnegie, the translator of Vanya and of many of Chekhov's plays, Sharon is a professor of theatre and Slavic languages and literatures and an associate dean at the USC School of Dramatic Arts. She's also a founding fellow of USC's Center for Excellence in Teaching. Fluent in Russian, Sharon is the internationally acclaimed author of Stanislavski in Focus, now in its second edition, which lays bare the significant ways in which the American method and Stanislavski system of actor training differ from each other. She publishes widely in the fields of acting on stage and film, Russian theater, dance, and performance in the town festivals of Puerto Rico. Among her other publications are The Theatrical Instinct, about the avant-garde director Nikolai Avrenov, Reframing Screen Performance with Cynthia Baron, and her nationally produced translations of Chekhov's plays in four plays and three jokes, including Uncle Banya. Sharon's articles on film take readers beyond star studies to the actual work of actors such as Jack Nicholson, John Wayne, Andy Serkis as Gollum, and Elizabeth Taylor. Sharon has worked professionally as an actor, director, dancer, and master teacher of Stanislavski's active analysis. Her speaking and teaching engagements have included Moscow Art Theatre, the Sorbonne, at the Institute for Puerto Rican Culture in San Juan, and the University of Helsinki, and the Institute for Theatre Research in Tampere, Finland. Sharon describes her mission as to bring Stanislavski's active analysis to the 21st century professional actor. And to this end, she's already adapted it for cinematic performance capture technology through a joint project with USC's engineering school funded by the National Science Foundation. Fabulous, Sharon. We're thrilled to have you with us today. And uh, I look forward to discussing Uncle Vanya. So, Sharon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's fun to be here. Delighted. Um, so let's talk Uncle Vanya. And the first question I had for you, which actually has been on my mind for many years since I first read your translations, the volume that you uh, translated of Chekhov plays includes what you describe as jokes, as uh, uh, which are his <laughs> yes. short plays, right? Yeah. Now, can you tell me a little bit about the the choice to describe Chekhov's short plays as jokes and how that is that a literal translation? It's a literal translation. Okay. Yes, he calls all his short plays jokes, shutki. Huh. And um, I actually asked the publisher when they asked me to do this volume if I could include some of them because I, I really feel that uh, they put a totally different spin on him. Right, and that's where he started. They're sort of vaudevillian in some respects, they're right? They're very vaudevillian, yes. Yeah. Uh, but they're vaudevillian with a twist uh -huh. because he never takes the easy way out. <laughs> so um, take the proposal. Yeah. I love the fact that they never propose. 
Nobody ever proposes. Right. The young man doesn't propose. The young woman doesn't propose. They both faint, <laughs> and they, um, the father wakes them up and tells them they've been engaged. Wow. And I just love those kinds of twists and his, his sense of humor. So I felt very um, that it was really important if we were going to do a volume of Chekhov that it take a very different tact on him. So even the cover on my book, he said famously in one letter that nowhere in Russia can you find heroes and villains. Um, So I'm not going to write about heroes and villains, but I can't somehow do without the clowns. (laughs) So I decided when we published this thing to put one of his famous clowns on the cover. <laughs> so I think that's right up your alley. Uh, yes, it is. That's very true. <laughs> and uh, let's let's go directly from that comment to Uncle Vanya, um, which is a piece that I think has, you know, ch- challenged theater go- goers and theater makers over the years. And I know that you've directed it as well as obviously translating it in your time. Um, where do you find that this play has humor and irony and and some of the kind of wit and uh, maybe even you might say cheekiness that are in some of Chekhov's jokes. And on the other hand, where does it become a very grave and serious work of literature? That's a great question. And actually, I saw the production on Friday and was sitting next to one of our colleagues who said to me, "Um, which is your favorite Chekhov play? And I said, Uncle Vanya. And he said, why? And um, it goes to your question, actually, why I think it's my favorite play. I think that um, in Uncle Vanya, Chekhov finally found his own voice as a playwright. He grew up loving vaudevilles. He went to the theater all the time and saw melodrama. Mm. And what I think he started to do in his more serious plays is try to figure out how to turn the genre of melon of melodrama inside out. Uh-huh. So what he started to do is think about because he did he hated melodrama and he loved vaudeville, but he wanted to craft something new. And how do you do that when you're an avid theater goer surrounded by people who are only doing melodrama, like Arkadina, for example, in The Seagull, right. who made her career on that. Right. And that's what the audiences expect. So if you really look at all of his big, long plays, the serious ones, what you start to see is that he's trying to squeeze the melodrama out of drama. (laughs) But he doesn't really do it very well at first. His first big play, which he never finished, Platonov, has Mm -hmm. three suicides in it, a murder, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Love affairs in which everybody is falling apart. It's the standard stuff of melodrama. Right. You get to Ivanov, and mm-hmm. there's still a suicide. And when you get to Seagull, which is the first big one, what you notice is that he really manages to avoid melodrama and criticize it in the first three acts. Uh-huh. But in the fourth act, it's... It's a little bit like he doesn't know how to finish it. Right. So he falls back on a melodramatic 
formula uh-huh. in which the young hero and the young heroine meet and have a big confrontation, which all our acting students love to do, and then the hero goes off and shoots himself, and it's a standard melodrama. Right. So for me, what I really, really love about Uncle Vanya is that he finally figures out how to use vaudeville to undercut melodrama so that when we really look at the heartache of people, Mm. we can both laugh at them and cry for them at the same time. So I I don't want to spoil the... The, the the big moment in the third act. But in this play, for the first time, there's no suicide. Right. And in fact, Uncle Vanya tries to murder his, his nemesis. Right. And like a good vaudeville, he actually misses. Yeah. But Chekhov underlines it. He misses his twice. <laughs> And then he tries to commit him uh, to commit suicide, and he steals the morphine, and is persuaded to give it back for love of really his niece, uh, who the title right. uh, reflects. Right. right? Um, and we end up at the end of the play exactly where we start. It's one of Chekhov's favor, uh, famous zero endings, right. where everybody starts and ends in the same place, yeah. and then there's this big hullabaloo in the middle. Right. Um, and for me, that sort of silliness seems to be more ultimately moving than going to the dramatic conventions where um, it's, it's almost too easy uh, a way out mm. to to just follow the convention of, you know, despair leading always to suicide. I know it happens, but many, many times it doesn't, and we have to live and go on and bear with what has caused us the pain. Right. And that's what I think he's exploring. So, I mean, for me, it's my favorite play because I feel like I finally really see Chekhov in it. Understood. And does that um, quality in which, which is, uh, you know, it's it's not in any way sentimental. The, by, by ridding no. himself of melodrama, he rids himself of no, sentimentalism. No, and the vaudeville becomes a kind of comic irony where we laugh and yet at the same time right. we understand that we're laughing because we we recognize this stuff in ourselves. So I I wanted to ask if that quality is present in Chekhov's short stories, for which he was more famous in his lifetime than uh, for his plays, I think. Is that that accurate to say? Yes. So so do we see that sort of um, ridding of convention in the short stories? Yes, I think so. I think so. Um, He, first of all, he always loved irony, Mm -hmm. whether he was, because he began, just like with the little vaudevilles, he began by writing really little comic stories that were vaudevillian. I mean, my favorite... Is, is a story called Joy, uh-huh. in which a young man who's gotten really, really drunk the night before, so drunk that he fell into the gutter, and a cabbie ran over him with his horse and dragged him along. And the next morning, he comes home to his parents, whom he's living with, 
And he runs in ecstatically, full of joy, saying, look, 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 I'm famous. And he's got the newspaper in his hand. Look, 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 I'm famous. I'm in the newspaper. And he hands his mother the newspaper, and she's looking through through the paper, and she can't see anything. And on page, like, eight or something like that, there's this tiny little paragraph about a young man who was run over by a cabbie and lived to tell the tale. <laughs> and he goes, you see, everybody in Russia is talking about me. I'm famous. <laughs> and he's so joyful, and the parents are just completely bemused. Right. I mean, he started with that kind of story, and... Right. Um, he used to say that he wanted to write stories as if he were looking through a crack in the wall. Hmm. He always had this sense of being a distanced observer on life. Mm-hmm. And because he was a distanced observer, he never identified so much with any one character that he couldn't laugh at them when they were silly and cry with them if something terrible and tragic happened. Mm. And I think what he does in everything he does, whether it's his stories or his dramas, is that he takes this very distanced view um, so that he can look at people's sillinesses. If I can take that one more step, he was a trained doctor. Yes. And from about 1897... He had a terrible bout of tuberculosis. Uh-huh. He knew he was dying for most of his life, huh. and he knew he was dying while he was writing all those wonderful plays. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing that makes you more distanced and look at life as a precious gift mm-hmm. and know how fleeting it is mm-hmm. than the knowledge of our deaths. Mm-hmm. So for my money... He also laughs at things that we don't expect people to laugh at because he's looking at this from this broad perspective of a man who's dying. Mm. So even, say, in The Cherry Orchard, he can laugh at Ranievskaya when she cries about losing her orchard because he knows that it's more important that life goes on right. than a piece of property. Right. And that's something huh. that I think his knowledge of his own mortality gave him during all of these plays. Take Sophia in, um, in Uncle Vanya. Yeah. She ends the play, and she has this almost aria-like speech at the end where she talks about what it's like when we're dead and when the angels come and Mm. when they comfort us. And in the meantime, in our lives, we do the best we can and Mm. we find the best that we can in the moments. And the last lines that she say in Russian, it's almost like a breath Mm. because in Russian, the word will rest sounds like this. It sounds adachnium. And it feels like the breath that you take, mm-hmm. both to center yourself and to go forward. And it's repeated almost musically at the end of the play, adachnyom, adachnyom, adachnyom. And for me, that is also truly Chekhov, this mm. long-distanced ability 
to really go to what's most essential in his li- in the life mm. that we lead and cut out all the jealousies and the squabblings and try to get to the present. And who loves us and who doesn't love us is ultimately more important than all the jealousies right, <laughs> Now, speaking of doctors, um, Alcabania <laughs> contains one of, you know, dramatic uh, literature's most wonderful doctors in Astro. Um, is there any hint of a self-portrait in the character of Astrov, do you think? Um, <clears throat> I think there are definite echoes. Um, there are definite echoes in almost all of Chekhov's characters having to do with something of himself. Mm-hmm. He himself desperately wanted to buy an estate. Um, he, he was born as a serf. His grandfather bought the family's freedom, um, and so he grew up in a tradition of slavery, and so he was a self-made man. And so for him to buy an estate, for him to get educated and become a doctor was a very big deal. Um, So he did grow up with a lot of poverty Mm -hmm. and with a lot of illness, his father, who had been a slave, had um, sold medicines to peasants, mm-hmm. and many of them were quack medicines huh. in the store. <laughs> so when Ostroff talks about being a country doctor who is covering multiple villages mm-hmm. and riding and, and taking not money— but goods from peasants who are lying sick on the floor. Mm. It's really the way that Chekhov practiced medicine. Mm. He managed to buy an estate outside Moscow, and he remained a country doctor, and he would travel from uh, town to town treating the village peasants who had no money to pay him, so he would take chickens and eggs. Um, So in that Mm. sense... Astroff's complaints mm-hmm. are actual. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that um, the sense of his own failings is also in Astroff. Right. At the same time, I also see um, glimmers of Chekhov and many of the other characters. Yes, I'm sure. Obviously. Yeah. But, but I think the reality of Astroff's life as a doctor is mirroring what Chekhov really knew. And isn't there a very telling and evocative speech of Ostrov's in which he describes the death of... Uh, uh, Someone dying that's in right. chloroform that's yes, exactly at a factory, right. yes. And that's yes. A, always a very chilling moment, I find. It him. is, yeah. it is, because he can't get it out of his mind, that's right. but everybody around him wants him to just let it go. Yeah. yeah, yeah. that sounds very personal to me whenever I hear it. Yes. The thing that also fascinates me about that particular character is the um, the vast, almost inexplicable dis- difference between his self-destructive tendencies, you know, characterized by alcohol and womanizing on the one hand, and this very ecstatic and elevated vision of a future in which, you know, through horticulture and uh, forests, you know, humanity will ascend to a higher level. 
I just find it to be so brilliant well, that these are— Well, he's one of the first environmentalists. That's exactly he's right. He's really saving the forest. That's right. But to have those—that um, range of, um, of sort of humanity in a single individual is mm-hmm. so fascinating to me. I think a lesser author would write a drunk— or an idealist, but not both. But I think that's where we get the turning of the inside out of the melodrama. Right. There are no heroes. There are right. no villains. But we're there. But we're people who yeah. have frailties yeah. and people who also have wonderful things in us. Yeah. And where's that balance? I think that's what Chekhov is looking at when he says that I can't write heroes. I can't write villains. Right. But I can't do without the clowns because. Astroff is also a clown. Of course, absolutely. For all his womanizing and yeah. his drunking, he's nervous about how he looks yeah. when he meets Yelena. That's right. He wants her to be attracted to him, and he's worried that he's gotten a little too old and that maybe his mustaches are a little too silly. <laughs> yeah. And and that's the beauty, I think, of what Chekhov did as a writer. Uh, he really undercut a lot of literary and dramatic conventions to create people of these multi-dimensions in which we can both laugh at them and cry for them and admire them and hate them all at once like we do for people, so many people in our lives. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you know, as history tells us that Chekhov and Stanislavski um, met with so many similar values with Stanislavski and Nabirovich Danchenko wanting to rid themselves of mannerisms and so on mm-hmm. on the stage. It's mm-hmm. very very similar to what you describe of Chekhov. And yet, from my limited knowledge, there was quite a lot of tension between the two men, Stanislavski yes. and Chekhov, especially around the idea of comedy, I understand. Yes and no. Okay. okay. Tell me more. Yes and no. No, be- I'll go with the no first. All right. Remember, he was dying. Mm-hmm. And I have been around a lot of people who have been really seriously or terminally ill. And very often, their most nasty uh-huh. and angry sides can come out. Uh-huh. So we know that Chekhov really loved the Moscow Art Theater and loved the Seagull as it was staged because he fell in love with its main actress That's and married her. Right. And at the same time... Uh, By the time he got to the cherry orchard, he was so ill he could barely stand Mm. for the premiere. So some people have wondered if some of the arguments weren't as much about his fear and his own frailty while these things were being produced, especially Mm. the anecdotes that surround the cherry orchard. Okay. But the yes now, Hmm. he was not, how can I say this, a team player. Hmm. He was his own person. So when the the Moscow Art Theater did do Seagull, they just assumed he was going to become their house playwright. Uh But he did not. So at first he didn't want to give them Uncle Vanya. He he, which was his next big play. He, right. he he it actually premiered in the provinces and was doing very well in the provinces before he would allow the Moscow Art Theater to take it. Oh, I didn't realize that. So what's really interesting is that 
he didn't he he liked the productions but he also didn't want to be owned by a theater or have a theater presume that what he was going to do next was theirs mm. so there was a bit of a tension there mm. now let me go to Stanislavski yeah. if I can there's a wonderful anecdote about Uncle Vanya which I love because when he finally did give to the Moscow Art Theater Uncle Vanya and Stanislavski was working on it much in the same way that he had worked on Seagull um, he himself was going to play Vanya okay. and he was seeing the character as kind of a peasant, not very educated, mm. kind of the farmer, mm -hmm. Uncle Vanya, right? Mm -hmm. And Chekhov got very angry with him and said, you didn't read my play. Go back and read my play. That's not Uncle Vanya at all. Mm. And Stanislavski took the play and he read it and he read it and he read it. And he came back to Chekhov and he said, well, I can't find anything in here that says he's not a farmer. He's, you know, wearing a stylish tie in one scene, but that's all I can find. And he goes, ah, the stylish tie. This is a man who is educated, who knows the world, and who knows how to dress. Huh. I wrote it all there for you. Oh, wow. And what I love about that anecdote is that it's in one stage direction. Right, right. So for Chekhov, every single detail counted in his plays. And so when he said to people, you didn't read my play, he might be talking about the most fleeting detail, like a stylish tie. <laughs> so I, when I write about Chekhov, I like to talk about the devil in the details. Right. I think everything is right. the devil everything in the details. Yeah. Now, I think it would uh, we'd miss an opportunity if we didn't discuss the women in the play in a little oh, more detail. Yes. And one thing that intrigues me about Vanya, of course, you know, the the two leading female <laughs> characters are are almost legendary to young actresses, <laughs> and uh, so many um, wish to play Elena or Sophia. But there are four women in the play. Yes. And can you tell us a little bit about this, you know, this quartet and how it is that the two smaller roles are in any way reflective of, uh, of the younger women? Or, or how do they contextualize the younger oh. women? <clears throat> well, first of all, I love Chekhov's women. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's one reason why I love Chekhov. Mm -hmm. I always feel that his women are as equally complex yeah. as his men and that they're really real women mm -hmm. who are dealing with the circumstances of our, their lives. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, the quartet in this particular play really does show a kind of interesting strata of the society mm. because, first of all, Sonia, her name is Sophia, and Sophia means wisdom mm -hmm. in Russian. And she kind of carries a kind of wisdom in the play mm -hmm. that no one else does. And I think that that wisdom is about sort of living in the present for the present. Um, and she's really a powerful force at the end with the monologue that I was talking yeah, about. Yeah. Um, there's a lot more to say, mm -hmm. but 
Um, she's works. She pays attention to yeah. every day. Um, and I think her, she's um, beautiful in her own way, but maybe not recognized in a social strata. Right. In fact, in my translation, it was really important for me to translate the fact that she doesn't say I'm ugly in her big okay. monologue. In Russian, she says I'm not beautiful. Uh-huh. And I think not beautiful is a very different feel. That's right. Which is what Chekhov writes, then I'm plain or I'm ugly, as as you can see in some other translations. I think her beauty is a beauty within. Mm -hmm. Um, Yelena, the word in in Russian is Helen. Mm -hmm. She is Helen of Troy Mm -hmm. because she comes and she destroys apparently everything. But unlike Sonia, she comes from the city. She knows how to dress. Mm -hmm. She has a certain style. Um, that can turn men's heads in the play. Mm. Um, but I think she's struggling as much as Sonia is in her own way to figure out what is the present. I love the speech in which she says, I'm just a secondary character in my own life. Yeah. How can Helen of Troy think she's a secondary <laughs> character in her own life? And yet there's some truth to that uh-huh. because everything revolves around her husband or around the estate. And nobody is really looking at her and not just her beauty. Um, But then we get to Vanya's mother, who is one of my favorite characters of all time. She is a suffragette. Those pamphlets she's reading are social, democratic, Mm. pre-revolutionary Russian pamphlets Mm -hmm. in which Women are sort of mm, struggling to be able to go abroad, to go to school, um, to think 1920s suffragette, Mm -hmm. and you've got that character. And she's got her nose in those pamphlets all the time. And those political ideas seem more important to her than her own son in front of her. Right. And then there's Marina. Yeah. There's Russian culture writ large. The idea of a nurse who is part of the family, who was from the peasant class, who takes care of the children, but isn't just employed for the children, becomes part of the fabric Mm -hmm. of the family so that she's there. There's another woman in this play. Uh And I actually almost, when I was staging this play in Norway, I thought about making, bringing her into it. Uh And it is Sonia's mother. Uh Sonia's mother, who has died, who doesn't appear in the play, haunts every single scene of the play because Sonia owns this estate Mm -hmm. because of her mother. Telyegin, who is the hanger-on, but mm. but whose uncle originally owned this estate, sold it at a discount to this family so that um, Vera Petrovna, the mother, mm. could have it for herself. Vanya put his own inheritance into Hawk to get this estate for the sake of Sonia's mother. So I, I was thinking when I was—we didn't do it, mm. but there was a moment where I thought that I would bring the ghost of Sonia 
uh, Sonia's mother hmm. into the play because hmm. I think, I imagine that all this furniture was put together by Sonia's mother, mm-hmm. placed where it was by Sonia's mother. She haunts Vanya, who remembers her so clearly that part of the tragedy of this play is losing not just the estate, but what he did for his sister, who has passed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there she is really a force in the play when you think about what motivates these people. So there's really five women in the play. Interesting. You're reminding me one of my and other— And Vera, by the way, means to believe. Oh, okay. Very good. And I was about to say one of my other favorite plays of this period is Hedda Gabler, and of course, uh, General Gabler yeah. hovers over that play yes. um, without ever physically showing up because yes. he's uh, he's dead. So, Sharon, you've you've actually, I think, in your descriptions of these characters now, and some of the interests and uh, histories of these people, you've begun to open up the whole question of the sort of social perspective of Uncle mm-hmm. Vanya now. Um, again, I'm an amateur lover of Shakespeare, of um, Chekhov and of Russian history of the time, so I can't say that I know things in detail. But I've always intuited that this, this stasis, which almost tortures Vanya, mm-hmm. which Sonia has learned to live with, but which Vanya you know, sort of wrestles with and, uh, and wishes to reject at every possible turn, uh, is part of a world which in 20 years is going to explode. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how much did Chekhov um, consider himself to be a social writer and someone who was critiquing the the society of the time? Was that very important to him? It's really hard to answer that because he himself refused to take any political stance. Hmm. He, was, he was known for making his hmm. critics crazy hmm. By refusing to take a side at a point when um, politics in Russia uh, were driving literature. So people like Belinsky, for mm-hmm. example, he's a, he's a critic in Russia at the time, were actually judging literature by whether it took a political stand, whether the literature was politically engaged. It became kind of a measure of whether this was a good piece of literature or a bad piece of literature. And then there were others, like there was a writer named Chernyshevsky who actually wrote a novel, What is to be Done, Mm. which became Lenin's Uh motto. The title of that became Lenin's model. And he used to say that, um, you know, a bowl of soup was better than Shakespeare Hmm. because people's lives mattered more than literature. And there was this real engagement with social affairs. And Chekhov used to drive people crazy because he would say things like, I am not a social democrat. I am not an ideologue. I am not this. I am not that. I am not that. All I am is a humanist. Uh That said... If you look at his details, he sets the facts up so that you do feel that he is always on the side of 
kindness and mercy mm. to the sufferings of people. Mm. Um, and, and that said, he even shortened his own life, now I'm talking biographically, by going on this crazy scientific journey after he already knew he had tuberculosis, he traveled all the way to Siberia mm. to do a study on the penal system there where people were dying and of malnutrition who were imprisoned. And he wrote this extraordinary expose when he came back on, on the penal conditions there. Mm. So you can't say that he's not socially engaged. But he refused all labels, and he only always said that he was about humanity. Mm. So I, I do feel a kind of mercy in, in him for his people, even as he's laughing at them. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that answers the question it entirely. Does. Well, yes. And I, well, I, now it makes me want to ask you, as a scholar and, an, and a practitioner of Chekhov's work, whether you feel that he was a prescient author, whether or not he I, intended I do a point of view. I do, because I think what he was brilliant at was the clear-sighted observation mm. of what was really going mm. on. And when you really put something under a microscope, mm-hmm. especially when you look at it in hindsight, mm-hmm. you can see all the roots of what it is that ultimately evolves from it, I think. Right. But I also think that there may be one reason that he himself might have said that his theme was not politics or social change because of the word you used, Mm. stasis. Uh I think that his real theme in almost everything he writes is the quality of time Uh and how we use our time or abuse our time and how we allow time to pass. I mean, there's a great moment in, in Vanya where Yelena says, I'm so bored, I don't know what to do. And Sonia says, well, you can teach peasants, you can, you know, farm, you can. There's a lot to do if you just look around to do it. Right. And she goes, well, I don't know how to do any of those things, <laughs> right? It's, it, there's something about how do you use your time? You know, do you... Um, fritter it away worrying about what's past or Mm. do you somehow roll up your sleeves and do something about it in the present Mm. or do you just sit back and enjoy what you have without worrying about what it is you don't have? Right. There's something in him that always keeps me going back to the problem of how we use our time socially, humanely, um, in families, in in any sphere. <laughs> I, I, that's so wonderful. And it, it actually helps to explain to me an instinct that I've always had, which is that there is some hidden connection between especially Uncle Vanya as a play and the work of Samuel Beckett. Yes. And, and, yes. and I always got it from stasis and boredom and all of those things. But I think you've just described it beautifully when yes. you considered the role of time in the imagination of these yeah. authors. Yeah. You could take his most... Um, 
politicized play, mm -hmm. uh, Cherry Orchard, mm -hmm. where people often see the tutor yeah. as um, the voice of the oncoming revolution. Right. Right. Um, but the other part of that play that people sometimes miss is that the cherry orchard in that play was at one time a working farm that actually produced real income huh. for the parents of the people who are going to lose it. Right. So if you think about the main characters in Chekhov's cherry orchard, their parents, they were like... Uncle Vanya mm -hmm. and Sonia, who mm -hmm. were working the land and eking out the living, mm. but then their children somehow didn't learn to do that. Right. So then you have Lepakin coming mm -hmm. in, who wants to say, okay, well, working the land no longer works here because the cherry orchards don't produce cherries anymore. <laughs> so if you want to work the land, you have to look at what's happening today to make it work. And that means you have to think about renting the land right. to make your next income. Right. And there, it's like the idea of productivity kind of skips a generation <laughs> because um, Chekhov thought that Lepakin was the hero right. of the play, and we tend to think of him as the villain because right. he chops down the cherry trees. That's right. But he's thinking pragmatically about yes. time and how to make money off of what you need to do in the present. So it's just a kind of yeah, different twist. Yeah. We're attracted, I think, to the sentimentality of the cherry We want orchard. melodrama. We do. We, do. we, we want still it. want melodrama. <laughs> um, it's all over on our, our TV. That's exactly right. Oh, we we, all we, want we, melodrama. That's right. So I wanted to close, uh, Sharon, by asking you a little bit, a bit about your production of Uncle Vanya. You directed it in Norway yes. a year or so ago, yes. is that right? And, yes. you know, did, was, how did you approach directing the play? What was on your mind and what did you want to explore when you when Well, you first of all, I want to say something about our production here. Please do. Because I'm very pleased that Greg Daniels has taken it on. I've had such Wonderful. a lot of respect for him as a director. Um and so I'm very, very pleased. Good. And um, I was very happy to see it the other night. There are a lot of nice little moments Great. that were lovely. Um, and from that point of view, one of the things that's difficult about translating, writing plays, directing yourself mm. is that you have, I believe, I'm merciless like Chekhov was merciless. Mm -hmm. There is no definitive production of a play. There cannot be. There ever will will not be. Right. You can have a definitive edition of a poem right? because everybody's checked it for the periods and the commas. Right. But every time we do it, it lives for today. Mm -hmm. For me, when I directed it in, in Oslo, I was really fascinated by this problem of time. Okay. So I wanted somehow to help the audience understand that there's something, in my view, kind of zen about Chekhov, mm -hmm. that we have to really learn to live in the present, not mm -hmm. worry about the past, not look to the future. So in order to do it, I used his sound effects, mm -hmm. and I created from the cast a kind of percussive or orchestra mm -hmm. that made um, musical 
compositions mm -hmm. from the sound effects that were going to be in the play at the beginning of each act to set the mood and the mm -hmm. tone mm -hmm. for what we were going to do with each act. So, uh, so there was no traditional music at all, huh. and yet there was a lot of music in the play. And they, the music was composed of things like people pacing, uh -huh. um, a dropped book uh -huh. from the library of the professor uh -huh. when he fell asleep, uh -huh. knitting needles, um, huh. chess pieces being moved around on a board, glasses being poured. Quotidian a little sounds. Bit, right. Yes, exactly. Rhythmically structured right. to create uh, sound patterns that would then crop up as the play unfolded mm. so that we would then hear the book and we would hear the footsteps. And it, I, I thought it worked for us very, very well. It created a very interesting mode. Mm. And the actors always made all of the sound effects. Mm -hmm. So even at the very end when, when Sonia was doing her aria, mm. uh, the actors created a kind of rising wind of storm outside that okay. underscored. So there was underscoring yeah, yeah. Um, used with music that was made from the actors who weren't directly in the scenes. Right. So the actors sort of all sat on stage, and it was clear to the audience that they were our orchestra. Huh. And we had a little... We had an area that was the professor's desk that we could bring lights up uh -huh. and see him. And to make the audience understand this was music and not just right. sound effects, I had a really wonderful sonographer who worked with me there, and we mic'd it. Uh -huh. So we mic'd the tables. We didn't mic <laughs> the actors. <laughs> we mic'd the tables so that you could hear all these little things. Right. And it was really, really fun to do. Right. The actors and I created it together by just working out um, little improvisations and yeah. sound and rhythms. Yeah. Sounds amazing. So that's what we did. And do you have a Chekhov project in your future, whether it's directing no. or writing, translating, anything? No. no. Okay. No, right. no, not at the moment. I did do something kind of fun. Uh -huh. I just sent it off. There's going to be a new edition, um, a book about his letters that's coming out. And they, the editors wrote to a number of people, and they asked some people who worked a lot with Chekhov, to mm. just give them one favorite letter of Chekhov's oh, and nice. write a very short essay right. um, about why they chose it and what they loved about it. <laughs> and I had so much fun writing that. <laughs> the, the, may, may I say yes, one please. more thing yeah. about, about this letter? Yeah. He was writing to a secondary um, comic novelist who was a friend of his. Mm -hmm. Leontief was his name. Um, they had been friends for a long time, and his friend had been complaining to him about how he was being blackballed by the literary establishment. Nobody would take his latest stories. And in this letter, Chekhov ultimately writes this sentence, which I have long kept a over my desk, mm -hmm. because when we write, of course, there's mm -hmm. peer reviewers right. and editors, and everybody has a say on what you write. 
right? And it, it's you, you never feel like you're alone sitting at your desk. All these people are in your ear telling you how <laughs> to write it, right? So he says in this, forgive your enemies, forget it all, sit down and write. <laughs> and I have always kept that above my desk. So that was the letter I picked. And I was, as I was reading the letter over and over and over again, and trying to craft this essay, two things were really interesting. I'd been into Norway recently, right. as you know. Right. And I visited Ibsen's house. Okay. And I went and looked at his apartment several times. Mm-hmm. And in his writing room, he has actually hung a huge six-foot portrait of Strindberg above, right in front of his desk. <laughs> I've heard about And of this. course, Strindberg is his Right, his enemy. nemesis, yes. Yeah. So he's like visually saying, I want my competitor's <laughs> face in front of me so that I can write because that's going to prod me, spur right. me on. And here's Chekhov saying, forget your enemies. <laughs> I'm thinking... Isn't this great? Yeah. Two wonderful dramatists, both giving advice about how to write. Mm. And ultimately, I kind of like Chekhov's The Better. <laughs> easier on the soul, I it's think. It's a little <laughs> easier on the soul <laughs> than to write with your critics yes. staring over you. Yeah. But I, I, I felt like this was – there's a, a, a technique that the Moscow Art Theater uses a lot called Zerno, it's seed – where an actor starts a role Mm -hmm. and they try to create a hypothesis, a seed from which their whole character will grow. Mm. Um, And it's a seed, not the role, because Mm -hmm. like a seed, you don't know what the tree is going to look like. You just start with a seed that doesn't necessarily look like the tree Mm -hmm. that you end up with. And I felt like this is Chekhov's Zernal. This hmm. is his seed. Everything he writes comes from this place of just simply being true to yourself and not worrying about whether your enemies like or dislike what you do. Right. So that's... That's very wonderful. <laughs> it's, like, it's a great mantra for us to end on. Yes. <laughs> well, right about my desk. That's right. Well, thank, thank you, Sharon, you. so much. It's been thank wonderful. Thank you. Okay. Tune in next time where we'll be uh, hosting uh, SDA's podcast and discussing The Kentucky Cycle by Robert Schenken. Podcast at SDA is a production of the USC School of Dramatic Arts. Your host is the Dean of the School of Dramatic Arts, David Bridell. Podcast at SDA is recorded, edited, and mixed by the students and faculty of the BFA Sound Design Program. Join us in two weeks for our next episode of Podcast at SDA.